Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In recent weeks, the discussion about COVID-19 has increasingly turned from the medical aspects of the disease to the often contentious debate about optimum policy response. But this debate often has seemed like a dialogue of the deaf because comparing the myriad policy responses in different countries around the world is difficult, so everyone naturally focuses on the national examples that best suit their argument. But researchers at Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government are trying to change that with a database and analytical tool that they call the Coronavirus Government Response Tracker, which includes an index that measures the overall stringency of policy responses to COVID-19 around the world. Their preliminary research already has been summarized in a working paper titled Variation in Government Responses to COVID-19, which was published on April 29th. After reading it, I asked one of the authors and project leaders, Oxford Public Policy Professor Thomas Hale, to come on the podcast to explain his methodology and his goals. He spoke to me from Oxford earlier this month. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Your paper is titled Variation in Government Responses to COVID-19. And you attempt to quantify the degree of stringency of, call it lockdown responses. Was it difficult to assign a number to things like policies involving school closures and that sort of thing? How difficult was that? It's definitely difficult, but also necessary to create a comparative measure. In political science and social science in general, we often use these kinds of simple ordinal scales to get a rough cut of what different government policies look like in different countries. So we're trying to create a relatively broad measure that's comparable across countries. And the limitations of our work is that you have to put lots of things together into a simple ordinal scale, giving a simple intensity rating. But the benefit is that you can then compare roughly what different countries are doing to each other, um, which is a helpful tool for the kind of comparative work we're trying to enable with the tracker. Now, a lot of this research depends on mining somewhat granular local knowledge, even if that granular local knowledge is then expressed in a broad index. I noticed that there's a list of dozens, I don't, maybe over 100 people who worked on this. Uh, has this been fairly labor intensive to get all the data you needed? It certainly is. So all of the information we're collecting is from government sources or from uh, public media. So it's coming from different places, but we're trying to put it all together in a way that's comprehensible. And that requires us a lot of human power to sort through all these different press releases and uh, news articles and put them into a coherent framework. So we have about 100 Oxford students, staff, and alumni working on the project. They are sorting through these um, information sources every week and updating the database in two cycles per week. So it's very labor intensive indeed. You have many countries listed here. Uh, They range from open democracies that are publishing all their data. But you also have China and Iran, two countries that have had many deaths, of course, from COVID-19. 
How difficult was it to get that data into your data set, given that there's been all sorts of controversies about how reliable their numbers really are? That's a really good question. And of course, the number of cases is particularly vulnerable to what governments decide to do, because that depends on testing, which is which is not um, random, shall we say. So in our track, we're recording what policies um, governments have in place or not. And that information is fairly reliable because we're not trying to count number of deaths or number of cases. That's coming to us through the European Center for Disease Control. So by looking at what the government's kind of official policy policies are, we're able to have a bit more um, confidence that they're telling us what they're doing in an accurate way. Um, the tracker, though, of course, doesn't look at how well they're actually implementing those policies, and that's a key variable as well. Some of the factors you consider are fairly obvious. You've got school closings, workplace closings, uh, the closing of public transport, stay-at-home requirements. But you also include economic responses such as income support, uh, fiscal measures, debt relief for households. How does that figure into figuring out overall response to COVID-19? Yeah, it's an important question. So the tracker looks at a whole wide range of different government responses, including the kind of closure and containment policies, lockdown, if you will, um, economic responses, public health interventions. The stringency index, though, is just based on those closure and containment policies, so it's looking at nine of the 18 indicators we currently collect information for. For those who are interested in reading the report, you also have sections on things like investment in COVID-19 vaccines, emergency investment in healthcare. So it looks like this is sort of a broader project, perhaps, that will take the form of looking longitudinally at how these governments respond to COVID-19? Is is this a long-term project? Yeah, we're hoping to continue it throughout the course of the pandemic. I guess no one really knows exactly how long that will be at this point, but certainly it'll be um, for the rest of this year and, and most likely beyond that. And we're building this airplane as we fly it, really. So government responses are evolving as um, the pandemic itself evolves. And so we're having to add new categories or tweak their existing categories as it all changes. Certainly, I think going forward, we're going to see these lockdown policies ramping up and ramping down um, as the different waves pass through. But we're also going to see a lot more interest in how we manage the economic consequences. And so having that information as well is going to be important for a holistic evaluation of what governments are up to. You have some really interesting graphs that take particular countries and compare their reported deaths over time, and then you superimpose the stringency index versus time. So that is an abstracted measure of how stringent their lockdown policies have been. In some countries, you have the deaths mounting. You see the stringency of the policies as a response to that. In other countries, you see stringent responses coming online days before, or I guess even weeks before, you see a big surge in deaths. And I'm just going to pick two countries here, France and South Korea. Now, South Korea is often lauded for its its proactive and highly interventionist approach to heading off COVID-19. But in, in both France and South Korea, you had a lot of stringent measures that were put in place before there was a huge surge in deaths. Uh, and yet in France, of course, the death toll, I think, was much higher. Were there any broad patterns that came out of the graphical presentation of this data? Yeah, so I think we see a few different clusters of government responses. Some were very proactive and had a high level of stringency before um, they even had any cases, and certainly well before deaths began to increase. There are some surprising entries into that category. 
like uh, Croatia, for example, um, which had a very high level of stringency right from the beginning. We also have some countries where you see stringency ramp up pretty quickly once deaths begin. As you know, France is a good example of that, um, Italy as well, where basically once the people begin dying in large numbers, governments react very quickly. And then you have another category where, of you might call whiplash reactors who um, wait for a little while for deaths to accumulate before beginning to ramp up the measures. So the UK or the US would be examples of that. So yeah, you have lots of different variation in, in not just the level of stringency you get to, but also the timing and how it relates to the development of the, of the disease in a given country. Well, China is a rather extreme example here. I'm looking at the graph. And there was very little response at first, uh, but then once the response began, I guess it was in mid-January, the response was quite abrupt and quite thorough. And you can see in the graph, the stringency index goes pretty much from zero to 100 or thereabouts very quickly. Uh, And then you see that as deaths level off, you see something that you don't see in the graph for other countries you actually see the stringency index start to dip a little bit. And I guess it's going to be interesting for you to continue this research as the graphs, at least the stringency graphs, go in the other direction. Uh, Is China the only example so far you have in the data of the stringency actually going down in in latter days? There's a few others, but just a few. Um, Mongolia is another example where there's been um, a peaking and a plateauing of deaths and and a subsequent decrease of stringency. We're now seeing, of course, a number more governments moving in that direction, both in Europe and, for example, Australia and New Zealand. China has, of course, the most history here to look at, even though it can be measured only in a matter of weeks. So we're on pretty thin ground for trying to draw too many lessons from it. Um, But even there, you see, even as government policies relaxed, uh, social behavior didn't change, you know, it didn't immediately snap back to normal. There's still a pretty a strong lag there. Um, and now what we're seeing in China some localized pockets of new infections coming about. That gives us a little bit of concern because we know it might lead to a kind of more decisive response and stringency coming again in the future. So it's probably too soon to tell how long you need to have it in place before it's safe to roll it back. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high-protein, low-carb solution for people who love their cereal but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. 
And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code Quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now back to our podcast. It's interesting how congruent the graphs are for the United Kingdom and the United States. Both countries seem to have been fairly laissez-faire at first, and then the stringency ramped up very quickly. Were there other examples of countries that seemed to be in lockstep? And if so, what were the common linkages? Was it, was it culture or geography, language groupings? Did you see any patterns like that? Yeah, so it seems to be people are influenced by um, what their neighbors do. So once one country in a region starts acting, we see other region, other countries in that region also acting pretty quickly. Countries are also fairly uh, heavy to respond in this critical second week of March. That was the time when the information began coming out of Italy and getting a lot of news attention. That's uh, when Google searches started peaking or, or spiking, rather. It was also when the WHO declared a pandemic. Um, so around that moment, there was a big shift globally. And countries where the virus was already emerging at that time were therefore kind of late to respond. And countries which were yet to be um, affected were way ahead of the curve by responding at that time. So definitely a lot of herd behavior. Were you tempted to break out some of these countries regionally? I'm, I'm looking in particular at the graph for Italy. Because if you looked at the graph for Italy, you might think, oh, wow, they, they responded real quick. But as we know, the response in Italy was geographically variegated. The Lombardy region was hit the hardest, and the policies there were very different from those in Rome, for instance. I guess even the United States, you had New York City and Seattle bearing a huge brunt, while there are portions of the country that have barely been affected at all. So how, how much did intranational regional considerations affect your analysis? It's a really important point that we're um, focused on going forward. So all of these measures are at the national level, and we record uh, subnational variation within them just in a very crude way by noting if the policy is in place um, for, say, a state or a province or a city, we call that targeted. If it's in place nationally, we call that general. But it means that for big uh, and highly feder- federated countries like the United States, especially, um, but also Brazil, also to some extent India, you see, you know, you have a crudeness to the kind of measures we have here. So one of the project's next steps is to begin tracking this information more systematically for subnational regions for those governments I mentioned. And we're, we're working to build it up quickly, but it's uh, taking us a little time. But that's going to be very important because even within China, the variation um, from province to province has been pretty important. And if we want to really understand how these measures work, we need to get them as targeted as possible. You mentioned before that in China, even when lockdown policies ended in a particular region, you would see people's behavior was sticky. They would still act cautiously, at least in the days and weeks following. How how much does that complicate your analysis? Because you're focused on, on government policies, some would call them lockdowns, but a lot of lockdown behavior is in a sense crowdsourced. People do things because their neighbors and coworkers do it or because their employer sends them home. How meaningful is it to focus exclusively on government response when so much of a response is dictated by what we read on social media or local decisions made by employers or civil society or family members? 
Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, so we see that government response is one piece of the puzzle, an important piece, but certainly not the whole picture. And one of the things we've been looking at is comparing how government lockdown policies relate to mobility changes using Google or Apple's data on changes in people's mobility. Um, and we see some interesting patterns where in some places, like in Brazil, for example, you see a begin uh, mobility beginning, beginning to decline before the government begins to act. Um, or as people are kind of figuring out for themselves that they should be changing their behavior. Um, in other places, like in the UK, people's mobility only begins to change after the government begins to act. And one of the variables I think is most interesting to think about there is trust. Do people trust the government to do what the right thing? Do, do they trust the scientific advice the government is relying on? Um, and if so, governments might be able to um, communicate behavioral compliance without going to full kind of stringent policies. In other cases, maybe not. Well, that's interesting because one of my own pet theories, which I've written about for Quillette, is that often these lockdown policies ratify existing consensus on lockdown as opposed to prescribing them. So you have high trust, high information societies like Sweden uh, or some East Asian societies where there might not be a formal lockdown, but a lockdown might not be required because people have social trust they listen to scientists, it can be deceptive though, because then you're reporting, oh, there's no lockdown in this society, but the pandemic to some extent has been controlled. Again, this is a complicating factor, no, because the societies that you're analyzing here have wide ranges of levels of social trust. Definitely. Um, so I think my, my own sense is that it's probably true that some degree of trust in public institutions uh, can substitute for more stringency. And we've seen a kind of negative correlation between trust in public institutions and the speed with which governments react. So governments that are less well-trusted by their populations have gone to stringency faster than governments that are well-trusted. And that's, that's probably indicative of that trend you're describing. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text, and all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. In the United Kingdom, where you live and work, some of these arguments have been particularly fierce. Was there any consideration among you and your colleagues about how this information would feed into this debate? For whatever reason, in the UK, it seems like there, there's been a particularly vocal segment of lockdown skeptics who've asserted themselves. How do you think this data might be co-opted by either side, by lockdown proponents or skeptics? 
Yeah, so our hope for the project is to create um, an evidence base to begin to find out exactly, you know, that question, what works, what doesn't work, how do we make it work better? Um, Because governments have, of course, been using these policies in the absence of a pharmaceutical solution, a vaccine or a treatment that or other kinds of public health interventions. Um, And we need to know what works and what doesn't work um, because this is an incredibly blunt tool and we need to be sure we're using it in the right way. Um, so our hope with the analysis is very much to inform um, evidence-based policymaking um, across countries and to put that comparative aspect into it, which is really important. I guess my own sense is that the debates so far are happening before we have enough evidence to really have those debates effectively. Um, we just don't have enough information yet about the epidemiology of this disease or um, how how people are reacting to it to be able to say definitively, you know, this policy is worth it or not worth it. Um, I think what we've seen is governments understandably taking a cautious approach by using these policies to reduce really catastrophic levels of death. Um, as you move into the next phase of the pandemic, we'll likely see them ramping up and ramping down as the pandemic waxes and wanes across the world. Um, and ideally, if we learn more about what works and what doesn't work, we'll be able to target them more effectively to go with just the pieces that are most important for saving lives um, as opposed to kind of a blanket coverage. But we st- it's just too soon to know exactly what level we need. I'm looking here at a graph that appears uh, late in the report where you have the stringency level as the Y variable and the reported number of COVID-19 cases uh, reported logarithmically on the x-axis. And you have a line down the middle. And so countries that appear above the line have a higher stringency level in relation to the number of deaths. Below the line, they have a much lower stringency level as compared to what you might expect based on the number of deaths they had. And well below the line, so these are countries that are not stringent, You have the UK, you have Spain, you have the United States, uh, you have Sweden, almost zero in terms of its stringency. And then above the line, you have Italy, Hong Kong, uh, right on the line, you have China, Iran, France. It's hard to see any broad pattern jump out at this. Is there a broad pattern that I'm missing? Because I can't see it. Yeah, that's that's not really a clear pattern. So we've been looking very carefully at what kinds of socioeconomic, cultural, political, um, demographic health factors might correlate with different differential government responses. And then, of course, the impact of that on, on the spread of the disease is it's a lot of randomness, to be honest. And that's you know going to probably get more clear as time goes on. It's still quite early in the pandemic to know how many deaths and cases we're going to see, sadly. Yeah, there's not, there's not a strong relationship there. So, so the graph is trying to raise a puzzle more than answer a question. If people want to follow this research more closely in coming months, uh, is there a website they can go to? Yes, our website on the Blavatnik School home site has all of our most recent data. It's all fully available publicly in real time. Um, Feel free to visit it. It's bsg.ox.ac.uk. Thank you so much for joining the Quillette Podcast. Thanks for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.